Hi, and welcome back. If you're listening to this on the day of, you know that we've been on a little summer vacation, and boy was it good. But now we're back in the saddle and ready to provide some sweet, sweet conversations. Oh, and should this be your first episode, there's already an entire backlog for you to enjoy. Today's episode is once again a little bit different. Instead of discussing a comic, we're having a hefty conversation about the media that made us. This turned out to be even bigger than we initially imagined, so it'll be a two-parter. We hope you enjoy this slightly different format, because we love doing it. Let's get personal! Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, a comic creator who is sitting in a completely different tent from usual. I'm in my bedroom today rather than in the office. Hi, I'm Joss. I'm a bolo nurse because I'm running a big charity stream tomorrow for Mermaids UK, so I'm a little bit all over the place today. We've been doing this since February now. Every episode outside of the Yaoi one, we have discussed a comic that we either are completely clueless about or very passionate about. Either way, it's always been a comic. And then I believe it was you who suggested that we should do an episode about comics that has inspired us as creators, not necessarily just what we like, but has influenced us personally. And I thought that was a really interesting idea, but then I intersected and said, I'm gonna have to be honest and say that I'm not just gonna bring comics to the table since that would be doing a disservice to what has influenced me. Because ironically, it isn't comics that are my biggest influence for being an artist and a storyteller, it's any other media. So I asked you if it was okay that we brought different kind of things to the table and you said that was fine. So that's what we're doing today. We're basically just touching upon big influences. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're kind of for both of us because we do comics for a living in some respects. This is going to come back to comics a lot because often these other media will have influenced the way that we tell stories with comics and the way that we think about storytelling in general. The reason why I said straight away, like, yes, let's do that is because exactly the same thing happened to me. Actually, my list of comics is relatively short and the rest of my list is really long. But it's worth saying uh, ahead of time, I've made a little list, and I think this goes for you too, of things that this episode and this list of things isn't. So I was trying not to build a list of things I, I read or watched the most. There are plenty of things that I've watched obsessively, but that haven't had a big creative impact on me. It's not a list of things that I rate the highest or that I'd be most proud to put in a list. There's some of these things that probably have not aged well, but I know if I'm honest with myself, they had a huge impact on me in the time, so I've put them in there. And it's not a list of things that I enjoyed the most necessarily. Again, there are some things that I absolutely love, but if I'm honest, just haven't touched me creatively at all. In those respects, this is a very, very kind of like refined list of just things that had a creative impact on me, either for better or for worse. I I haven't really tried to judge as I've done it. This is a very reoccurring question that creative people get, I think, is what influences you? What inspire you? What is your favorite X, Y, Z? And I always struggle replying to that because once you curate a list inside any given medium, I think it's very easy to get stuck and think that that is your favorite for the rest of your life. And that is so not the case, at least not for me. There's stuff that I really enjoyed as a teenager that I obviously don't enjoy today. There's stuff that hasn't aged great, as you mentioned. I have some of that on my list. Then there's the difference, as you mentioned, between what you enjoy and what actually impacts you. And that can also be really hard to separate. Do you find it difficult creating these kind of top 10-esque lists? Oh, yeah. On Twitter, there used to be a kind of common meme that would go around, like, oh, top five video games that that influenced you. And whenever it's limited to, like, five or ten or something, I always struggle to bring things up. A day later, I'll be like, oh, damn, I should have put that on the list. (laughs) How about you? Do do you feel like your list is comprehensive? Or do you reckon you're going to kind of come back to this in a little bit and think, damn... I honestly don't know. So we texted a little bit last night about our lists and you told me that yours had been kind of eye-opening for you and I responded that mine hadn't since I do a lot of introspection way too much. I also reflect a lot on all the things that I get inspired by, what I pick up little bits and pieces from, what I gravitate towards. I very often ponder upon that as a creative because whenever I feel stuck in something, especially when it comes to the ability to create, 
I always go back to my shelves of comics, my shelves of art books. I try to flick through my mental library of movies and games that I've enjoyed. And what is it about those things that I enjoyed and why? And can I recreate or get influenced by that in any way? So my list is very aware to me in a way. <laughs> mm, yeah, interesting. And I hadn't really considered that I don't really do that, or I haven't done that for a long time anyway. I've, I'm at the very end of a project, a personal comic project that has taken me over a decade. And because I went through that process at the beginning of that project, I really kind of refocused on what it was I wanted to do and what story I wanted to tell and what influences I wanted to bring and did, did a round of research and all that kind of stuff. But I haven't done that for nearly a decade. And this list is the first time I've really sat down with my influences since then. So that's why it was so eye-opening. That makes a lot of sense, though, since I finished Witchcraft back in 2020. And that's when I started going on my renewed journey of what do I really want to do? Who am I? I was going through a lot of personal <laughs> crises at the time, both creatively and as a person. I think that's why my list is so eh. Because I haven't really... To say I haven't changed since then would be a lie. Yet I'm very aware of my old influences at least. And what I have cherry-picked out of that. And what I have left on the sideline. And some of that will definitely be brought up today. <laughs> it's worth noting that I don't think there's anything in this list that's newer than like about 10 years old for me. But that's partly just because it takes a long time, I think, for something that you've only just seen to really sink into your creative process, or at least it does for me. How, how do you think that works for you? I am somewhat similar. A lot of this is stuff that I discovered as a teenager, since, as I told you before we started recording, those are very formative years. Right, yeah. I was suggesting that we both start with comics that we've already covered because we've both done one of our very biggest influences on this podcast already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine is obviously Fake by Saname Mato that we did a couple of weeks back for our Yaoi side of the show. If you haven't listened to that episode, I strongly urge you to go back. I'm not biased because it's fake. I'm biased because I genuinely think it's one of our best episodes in terms of we had a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. It's a very heartfelt episode, in my opinion. Fake by Sanami Mato mm. is definitely my kickoff. As I was thinking about The Walking Man, which we've already done a podcast on, and I recommend you go back and listen to that one as well, I uh, started thinking about how it's not just comics that have influenced me, it's wherever stories and visuals meet. I love that kind of interface between visual media and storytelling. So video games, comics, TV, especially animation. I think I like the majority of the things on this list for me are animation. I don't know if that's the same for you. I, I seem to remember you saying you, you were very influenced by animation as well. To a degree, there's still quite little, or it's not true saying there's quite little animation on my list. But again, a lot of it is from when I was a teenager and not so much now as an adult. There's one show. That's the one recent thing that's not books is an animated show. And I'm looking very much forward to, oh. to dive into that. But yeah, other than that, it's, it's a very mixed bag. I think video games is actually bigger for me, which is ironic since I have a bachelor degree in animation. <laughs> Let's come back to comics. I'm going to move on to my next one. Because around the same time that I was reading The Walking Man for the very first time, I managed to get a hold of an actual physical copy of it. I read something called Black and White. There's also a movie called Tekon Kinkerite by Taiya Matsumoto, the original comic. And the anime is by a studio called Studio 4 Degrees C, who've had a huge impact on me. I absolutely love this. And one of the things that was odd about it is that before that point, I was obsessed with pretty things. And The Walking Man is very pretty. The style is really well refined and the art is really gorgeous. And a lot of the things that I loved before that were very pretty too. Tekon Concrete was the first straight out ugly, I would say. Like it <laughs> if you if you pick it up and look at it, it's not a like an aesthetically appealing style in the same way that a yassified face is aesthetically appealing, you know what I mean? It kind of flies in the face of traditional aesthetic beauty. It's it's wobbly, the start of the faces looks kind of ugly. And I remember just being so put off by it when I first picked it up. But in the process of reading it, I really learned much, much more about like how expressive you can get if you're not obsessed with beauty. And it knocked my style for a while. Like uh, suddenly I wasn't quite so precious about things. And I was, I was attempting to copy this incredible sense of movement and just wild character that all the art has. 
and I, Taya Matsumoto, the creator, is just a, has become a big impact on me for storytelling and for how far you can push style. I love that you point that out, though, since that's something I struggle a lot with right now. After I wrapped up my first quote-unquote big comic, I was very self-aware over how, I don't personally enjoy this expression, but it's very relatable for a lot of people, cartoony my style had become. And I longed to do more decorative, yassified, beautiful illustrations where people look desirable, etc, etc. And that's what I spent the following years doing. To a point where I completely lost myself and I lost my voice. I don't even know what I was trying to articulate anymore when it comes to creativity. And now I am trying so hard to slowly skirt back into a more exaggerated look. Since that's what I heavily gravitate towards when I watch other people's work. Sure, it's very impressive seeing something that is aesthetically objectively very beautiful and technically impressive it just doesn't quite compete for me personally with something that is heavily stylized and very expressive and interestingly a long long time ago i did a sort of an open call on social media for people to sort of critique my work and i filtered out the things that i did sort of i didn't think were kind of particularly useful but one of the most commonly recurring ideas in the critique was that i didn't push my style enough i didn't experiment with things i didn't go outside of that kind of pretty envelope and that's something i really want to do with my future work and i'll be coming back to tech on kinkery or black and white to see that i feel like i'm underselling it a little bit the art is incredible in both of these but it's incredibly functional once you appreciate the aesthetics of the function, it's also beautiful, but it's not beautiful in a typical way. Yeah, and I have such incredible respect for creators who go that path. And maybe it's just a me thing, but I feel like that is more difficult to purposefully do. That that's something you set your mind to do as an opposition to beauty and to the norms. There's something I find very noteworthy when people are able to do this, because I struggle with this. I want people to like what I do, and I want to appeal to the masses in a way, since that's where, sadly, the money is. But I also want to be true to myself, and I want to be brave, and that's a fine line to walk. It's almost like the heart of creativity, isn't it? Getting a balance between those two things. Yeah, being true to yourself, but also gathering an audience. I, I have not solved that riddle and I don't know if I ever will and I've spent very, <laughs> very many light unhealthy nights overthinking that. So next up for me is Wet Moon by Sophie Campbell. Are you familiar with it? Yes, yes I am. I picked this up in my late teens, early 20s, which is when I slowly started picking up comics more seriously. I had my manga phase as a teen, but by the end of my teen years, I was like, if I have to read another typical manga plot device, aka Naruto or Bleach or whatever, I'm gonna barf. Because that's the thing, I've talked about this a lot with other friends of mine who <laughs> are fun enough, a little hostile towards manga readers. Because manga readers, oh. and I'm generalizing here, of course, it's a, it's a hyperbole, but they tend to think that manga is the Bible. It's some sort of religious text, and it's so unique and so fantastic. And once they discovered manga, they just met Nirvana. There's nothing else in the, in the world for them, and nothing can compete. <laughs> I was definitely that guy when oh, I was a teenager. <laughs> one hundo, one hundo. That was me. I'm not pooping on anyone. I was that teenager. The thing is, I also eventually picked up upon the patterns that very much are uh, repeating in manga. There's nothing unique about manga within manga. It's just unique put up against stuff like DC and Marvel, since they're, of course, completely different cultures. So it just makes sense that they will be very different. But yeah, by the end of my teens, I had picked up that there are formulas in mangas too, and I had just OD'd on them. So I started to look back to Western comics. Uh, knowing that I am not a Marvel or DC person, I started to look for the more what was then considered niche, and Wet Moon was niche. It was queer, it had a very diverse cast in terms of background. It was very eye-opening to see that, huh, okay, so there's manga, and then there's superhero comics, and then there's this thing, and this thing is what I, I'm super here for at this age. And to this day, that is where I've kind of stayed. Wet Moon was definitely my next one. How about you? So it's funny, actually. I can see a diverging point 
at that time, sort of probably between the kind of things that you were thinking about manga and the kind of things that I was thinking about manga, my response to noticing those patterns was to dig deeper into more indie Japanese comics ah. and sort of it almost reinforced the snobbery to a certain extent <laughs> oh, until... No. Did you become an elitist, Paul? Effectively, yeah. You know, I dug for the most obscure anime and manga that I could find that didn't fit those patterns because it was to Japan what Wet Moon was to Western comics. In that process, I started realizing, oh, this is all comics. The whole lot is comics. And that eventually broke down that snobbery and sort of allowed me to see the person and the culture behind the comic along with the comic itself. And sort of I stopped splitting things down into manga, comics, um, superheroes. I started just looking for individual titles that I liked, but I had to go through that snobby period (laughs) to get there. So in my sort of Japanese indie comics phase, I ended up discovering a couple of really beautiful things that deeply influenced me. And the the way they tended to influence me was actually in terms of what you can do with panels Mm. and how you can subvert like the panel grid and how creative you can get with the page as a piece of art, as well as each panel as a piece of art. And they are a comic called Town of Evening Calm by Fumio Kono. It follows a woman who experiences Hiroshima then follows the impacts of that event generationally after her. And I just remember there being this point at which she'd survived the blast and was trying to leave the town. And the author flipped the panels on their side. So the entire comic read from bottom to top. And she was attempting to walk out of the town on these giant vertical panels with these the devastation in the background. And the impact of that very small change in the way that the comic was framed just stuck with me. I remember it being like an eye-opening moment, like, holy crap. And then the other one was a comic called Dollis by Maki Kusamoto, which I think going back to it is going to be very kind of like edgy. And uh, (laughs) it has like this incredible, jagged, completely uneven never regular panel layout all the way through and each segment of the comic is printed in three specific colors to give it a kind of a scheme or a mood and those different approaches to the way that it was framed and printed again it just completely opened my eyes to what I could do with comics and then suddenly all my panel layouts were jagged and uneven (laughs) and I I used shard shaped panels all of the time it was it was very sort of fun so were there any other, any other comics sort of in that same era around when you read Wet Moon that, that had an impact on you? The next one for me is Scott Pilgrim by Brian Lee O'Malley. Oh, okay. And also in same author, Seconds, I didn't add it, but it, I read both of those around the same time. And having gone from manga, where a lot of manga, depending on what you read, obviously, but a lot of manga generalized, is very beautiful. It's very, it can be very intricate because as we mentioned before, they have the tones. They also have the pre-made patterns a lot of the times, like cityscapes and flowers, etc. So it looks very rich and detailed and time consuming, even though they of course have a lot of shortcuts. Going back into Western, calling Scott Pilgrim indie is not true, (laughs) but compared to DC, Marvel, Donald Duck, that kind of comic. I was just very blown away by seeing something so heavily stylized, yet looking so sharp and tight. It didn't look amateur. I haven't read Scott Pilgrim in many years. I don't necessarily think the story would do a lot for me today. But I will say that the art style still lingers with me, even though it is very separate from what I do. I took a lot away from how heavily you can bend push and pull shapes and make it still read as a human and a very expressive one at that. Now that you've mentioned that, I can see it in your witchcraft art, the sort of the original webcomic. I wouldn't have ever said it because I don't think I would have spotted it unless you'd mentioned it. But there is that kind of, yeah, there's just that sort of vibe of of pushing things and, and being very expressive. Yeah, totally see that. That leads me to something that I'm very passionate about. I wish I had the actual graph in front of me right now. But there is a very famous graph, theft versus inspiration, basically, where you have on the theft side, the negative way of taking elements away from what you like. The inspiration side has the positive ways that you borrow elements from what inspire you. And it makes me very happy when you say that now that I've said it, you're like, oh yeah, I can see that. 
to me, that says that I successfully borrowed from Scott Pilgrim instead of stealing from Brian Lee O'Malley. So rather than just being like, I'm going to draw eyes exactly like Brian Lee O'Malley, mm -hmm. you sort of understood what it was that drove the quality in the artwork and then tried to capture that for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that distinction. I will have to put down that I was definitely not reflected enough to know that at the time. I'm a very intuitive creative. I think we touched upon that before too. I go by instinct and then in hindsight, I can toss on some really fucking pretentious nonsense of why that is. But it's only in hindsight that I've gained the inside knowledge to why I chose that path. I think I tend to be overly analytical sometimes and I struggle with the more intuitive side of things. I'm very good at articulating what I want to capture and not necessarily very very good at actually capturing it. So I've drawn a distinction in my list. I've actually written a little note down here. There's some things in this list that I desperately want to impact me. And I'm not even sure if they have yet or not. And I understand why they're good. I understand why I want them to impact me, but I'm not sure I've managed to to make that happen. And then things that just automatically, the more instinctual side of me brought in as an influence, normally without thinking about it. In a way, it's harder, I think, when you can fully articulate what it is you want to figure out whether you've really got it in your own artwork. Oh, yeah, I've never really approached it like that. It's always very eye-opening for me to have these kind of discussions, to see just how different we approach our craft, even though we do similar things. We are so incredibly different people. And to see that you're very analytical and despite that, you can struggle to incorporate. And I feel like I sit here, you know the meme of the kid crying while drawing on paper like she's leaning on her forehead like, <laughs> yeah. ah, like that's me half of the time when i'm crying i know i it's a lie saying no thought head empty because it's kind of the opposite my head is so full that it's hard for me to concentrate on what i'm doing and being concisive about it <laughs> probably my last comic influence is a more refined one because this is a comic artist i discovered whilst i was at university called joshua middleton he worked on a actually a marvel thing one of the very few Marvel comics I read at the time called NYX, which is, I think it's something to do with the X-Men, but I don't really know. I was just obsessed with his style. When you were talking about the difference between stealing from and sort of being inspired by, I just stole from this guy for a <laughs> while. I just tried, tried desperately to make my art look like his because I thought it was so beautiful. And I've moved past that phase now, but it was, it was very intense, but it was much more principled. I think I understood more about what it was about his style I wanted to try and capture. And it was much less unconscious because I was in the middle of studying at the time. Mm. And to defend you a bit, I do. I think it's safe to say that almost any person drawing has been that person being so enamored by someone's style that you try to recreate it line by line, basically. This is something that is very hard to explain to especially young people or people who are very unfamiliar with the creative field. But when you see something you like, you see the present product. You don't see the years that has gone into refining that product. What you're lacking when you're trying to recreate someone's current style is years of toiling, failing, inspiration, etc. for that artist that they needed to get to where they are now. Really drawing and really learning a style. It's messy. It's it's doesn't go how you want it it's like wrestling with a car where the steering wheel goes the other way when you turn it the way that you want it's so strange yeah it feels like you're piloting a mech where the mech is the one drawing for you and you're just not responding with your outer shell at all you're just not synced up yes. and aligned yes giving yourself the right muscle memory to do the drawing and also allowing yourself to start to be able to do things unconsciously and I think I've only really only just started perhaps in the last five or six years to be able to not think like a maniac every time I put a line down so are we at the end of our comics influences then? I have one last and this is the one that all of the ones I've mentioned so far, I'm like, yeah, I'm super fine with mentioning these. Some of them I obviously like to this day. Some I still admire and respect, even though I may have outgrown them. This next one, I can say that, um, yeah, <laughs> we're going to get an insight into younger, very straight uh, coded jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Sunstone by Stefan Sejic. 
I will full disclaimer say that I do not know this man at all outside of this comic. I know that he is a big name in the comics industry. He's, for example, made alternate covers for Critical Role comics. He's a he's a big name. I can't stress enough that I'm not poo-pooing on him as a person or his craft or anything. It's just that this is so not what I gravitate towards today. The thing that made me go, oop, with Sunstone is that it is about lesbians. And this was, as uh, again, in my early to mid-twenties when I was still deep-seated in the closet. <laughs> a lot of queer people will recognize what I'm about to say, and I'm not proud to say it, but we, we, a lot of us have been there. That if you're queer and you're closeted, you tend to grow very hostile towards your own sexuality. For a lot of lesbians, you dislike other lesbians, and for gay men, you dislike other gay men, because it's threatening to see yourself out there that you're so heavily trying to deny. At least that was my experience, and I know that is an experience for a lot of people. Sunstone was my first encounter where there were the two main characters, they were in a queer relationship together. My issue with Sunstone, in hindsight, is that it is... I don't know what kind of way to say this, it is just masturbation bait for straight men. It is the typical fetishization oh, okay. of lesbians that you see in porn, which there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that, and if that is your yum, I'm not about to yuck it. It's a very skewed view that, for example, me reading this, slowly, very painfully, slowly starting to even toy with the idea that maybe I was way more gay than I thought I was, seeing these incredibly yassified, slim, girly-girly women being incredibly fucking gay together, and every time they have sex, it's so sexy and so erotic and so perfect. There's never any big fuck-ups or hiccups or nothing. And hmm. all their scenarios are very straight. The way they behave with one another is very straight-coded. It could have been a man and a woman, no issue. When you see that kind of representation, to me, it just furthers the harmful stereotype that there's not room for you. You're the wrong kind of queer. You're not desirable. This isn't what the average queer person wants. They want these kind of people. You're way too masculine. You're way too big, like, etc., etc. Because I didn't look like those women. I don't to this day. And today I have no issue with that. But reading it as a mid 20 year old, I went, ooh, okay. So I'm definitely not gay then. <laughs> <laughs> well, because all gay women look like this, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I followed him for the art at one point. Is it kind of like quite heavily bondage -y? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's where I learned right, what shibari okay, roping yeah, and stuff like that is, BDSM, right, et cetera, okay. et cetera. It, I will say, to, to kind of really back up a little bit, because I don't enjoy shitting all over something, I do think it also had a very nice introduction to more kinky sex, not for me as a person, but my view on people with different kind of kinks and fetishes softened a lot through reading this. I don't know how realistic it is, because I am personally not into BDSM and roping and stuff, yet it felt very much more positive than something like Fifty Shades of Grey that does a very bad job of portraying mm -hmm. BDSM. <laughs> <laughs> Next on my list is the film show section. I've got this big collection of movies that I have realized are all linked by one person who I discovered whilst I was doing this. Do you remember that I recommended that you watch the intro to the Cowboy Bebop mm -hmm. movie? Mm -hmm. That is animated by a guy called Hiroyuki Okura, who is just an incredible animator. And I kept on finding his name in relationship to all of my ah. favorite animated movies. So I've got uh, Jinro, uh, the Wolf Brigade, he was the director. I've got Ghost in the Shell, he was the character designer and animation supervisor. I've got Pat Labor 1 and 2, where he also did animation supervising. I've got Magnetic Rose from the Memories shorts, which he was the chief animator and key animator for. I've realized that it's his sensibility of stylized yet deeply realistic and very, very physically grounded animation that just influenced me so deeply with the style that I love to go for, for my figure drawing, and to a lesser extent, the sort of the way I stylize faces. But uh, yeah, the other, the other guy who sort of really deeply influenced me around this time and has only done a couple of things. And 
I love them both deeply. So he ma- he directed Magnetic Rose, and he also directed one of the Animatrix shorts called Beyond. Oh my god! So I wanted to put Animatrix here, but my list was already long, like a bad year, because there's two shorts on the Animatrix that blew my mind, and it was this one, and the one by Madhouse. Right, yes. Okay, I know the ones you mean. Beyond, the one about the girl, was was directed by Koji Morimoto as well. And I've got one of his art books, and his art is stunning. He's done a bunch of other kind of adverts, shorts. He's been a key animator on a whole bunch of things. But those are one of the very few pieces of media that he's actually directed. And I love them both. I think they're incredible. If anyone listening to this is remotely into animation, and maybe more specifically anime since this is anime, if you haven't seen Beyond, you don't even have to like The Matrix. The Matrix has very little to do with it. You can watch it as a standalone. If you have not seen Beyond, you are missing out on something so truly special and beautiful. It's gorgeously paced. It's visually absolutely gorgeous. I I don't know how to describe this guy's work. He's done a lot of other very experimental shorts. I'll, I'll totally send you some links to them, and I'll put some links in the show notes as well. If I would give it a shot at describing Beyond, it's as if someone was perfectly capable of animating a dream that was sensical yet dreamlike. Yes, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Both Magnetic Rose and Beyond, I remember just finishing them and being completely in awe and then stopping and going back, like flicking back to the beginning and watching them again over and over again because they're very short and both of them have so deeply influenced me it would be hard to untangle that from my work in any way. You actually reminded me of another that I I didn't even remember from my list, but it would be a crime to not mention it. Sadly, I do not remember details of studio or anything. It's a short called Kakurenbo, which means hide and seek. Oh, I know that one. Sweden has always been much more culturally reaching beyond its borders than Norway ever has. So Sweden used to have these late night hours of showing more niche Japanese animation. And one evening in my teens, I knew they were going to show a bunch of shorts. The only one I remember is Kakurembo. It blew my mind. There's a bunch of kids in this ghost-like town with a bunch of very stereotypically Japanese buildings. And they play hide-and-seek together. And the whole kind of thing is that while they play hide-and-seek, these monsters come out to chase them. And the monsters look like these kind of parade yokais, I guess you can call them. I think they're supposed to be yokais, but feel free to to correct me, anyone out there. And these are 3D animated with like a cel-shaded look on top of them. It still looks really, really fucking great. And the the whole atmosphere of these kids being hunted down and I think essentially killed because a lot of them do get mauled by these monsters. It is just so out of this world. It has the same quality as Beyond for me, where it feels like you're watching a one-of-a-kind thing. The first thing that I'm going to bring to the table as a counter to that is Quentin Tarantino. Oh, really? (laughs) So we have had conversations in the past that I have cut out from the podcast where I have mentioned how influential he has been to me because I don't want to be cancelled. But I'm going to have to stand for it here. And this also gives me more room to elaborate. As an adult, I understand that. He's not a great guy. He, his love for the N-word eh, knows no bounds. I have heard stories that he pushes, especially the female actors, very hard on set. Not a very particularly good look in 2023. So with all that in mind... And I can also see that movies like both Inglorious Bastards and Django has aged like milk. Those are not the ones that I'm going to mention today. The top two that influenced me in my youth was Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is a very common one. Reservoir Dogs, it was the snobby thing to like. I just genuinely like it. The thing that I gravitate towards with Quentin Tarantino, and I know this is a hate it or love it kind of thing. I I know there's people who sit here going, oh my god, he is so pretentious. He thinks he's so fucking clever. It's only talking, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. That's super valid. I see your point. I respect it. My side of it is that I adore his character writing, all the slurs and problematic content aside, just please know that I'm hyper aware. I don't want to keep having to point that out. 
I really gravitate heavily towards how he makes his characters talk together in the universe. It is not in any way realistic. People don't talk like that. The thing is, real life is fucking boring, and that's why we seek out stuff like cinematography, comics, games. Sometimes you just want something incredibly fucking cool. And I do think that he, for the longest time, was the king of cool. And when I watched recently... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I once again had that, wow. <laughs> I know a lot of people did not like it for many very valid reasons, Leonardo DiCaprio being one, the fact that they make it all around the Sharon Tate murders. It's You can discuss how tasteless that is, and I think it's hyper-valid to do so. But in pure technical sense of cinema, it was so eye-opening for me to see someone just absolutely fucking not respect my time having long stretch scenes of just cars <laughs> driving like scenery characters just standing there it was the closest i think quentin tarantino has gotten to lynchian territory of fuck you and fuck your time and as someone who oh. always shits on conventional storytelling i love that i do not always dig it there's a bunch of lynch stuff that just does not sit well with me but I do respect someone who does not respect my time and they know that they're disrespecting me. <laughs> Damn, yeah, uh, the same, absolutely the same. And funnily enough, a bunch of the animation that I've got here is by Mamoru Oshii, who has a similar thing. He is happy to just set the scene, take his time, have a scene that's 10 minutes of someone talking in an elevator if he wants to, have a scene which is just sort of someone pontificating on the state of the hypocrisy of modern warfare whatever it is he doesn't respect your time he puts the time that he wants in his movies and i absolutely love that ghost in the shell pat labor one and two are both on here for that reason and i don't know is this a weird kink we've discovered with both have maybe we like to suffer <laughs> the thing is i would be a hypocrite if i kept almost every episode we had i seem like mm, conventional storytelling me 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 and i sound like such a cunt but at some point, I get full. I get very tired of seeing the boy met girl, the chosen one, shit like that over and over again in the same tried-ass fucking format. I recently watched Nimona, and technically, it's stunning. It is so beautiful. It's like arcane Spider-Verse levels of really beautiful 3D animation. Oh, I was just... Oh, I've got to watch that Yeah, then. from an animation technical standpoint, gorgeous. The story I've seen 5,000 million times, and I sat here going... And I admit, it is not for me, it is a kid's movie. And I don't say that derogatorily, it is made for kids, so it's not supposed to be hella fucking clever, and it's not supposed to be David Lynch with a man sweeping the floor for five fucking minutes with nothing else happening. I get that, and I respect it. I can still be so sick and tired of seeing these stories told oh, yeah. again and again and again and again and again. And I've seen kids' films that have completely throw me for a loop like totally unexpected i don't know if you've seen rise of the guardians mm -hmm. that is a super deep reflection on mortality and facing mortality as a child i've never seen anything like it in a kid's movie before i loved it <laughs> just super surprising so you don't have to be typical to work for kids absolutely not yet there is a very repetitive pattern when it comes to kids entertainments because it sells it's mm. predictable and I don't dig that. I do get that that's just how the cookie crumbles and that's the cynical capitalism part of our creative world. I feel like it's, it's a good example to something that I watched recently where I once again sat there going, you know, I can take characters in an elevator talking for 10 minutes about stuff that isn't even going to be a Chekhov's fucking gun to this story. It's so neither here nor there than the chosen one for the millionth time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Which leads me to something else, which is I went deep on the seeking non-conventional storytelling. And I think that the very pinnacle and one of my favorite films and another thing that's deeply influenced me is a film called Mind Game, again by Studio Four Degrees C, director called Masaki Yuasa. Mind Game can't be explained, it just has to be watched. The majority of it takes place inside a whale. It's mixed media animation technique. Some of it is like photographs that have been manipulated into animation. Some of it is sort of really weird, shaky line drawings. It's bonkers, but it's structured bonkers, and I love it. 
So do you have any anything else in your film and movie section? Yes, I do. And I'm going to slap them together a little bit. So I wrote down Berserk and Helsing and Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. Oh, I nearly put that one down. Oh, so oh it's, uh, it's, it's animation in its purest sex form. It is so beautiful. Everyone in that movie is yeah. hot, regardless of gender. I would bang them all. Anyway, Helsing <laughs> and Berserk are very much from me being extremely 15 and extremely edgy. I was like, cut my life into pizza. This is my plastic fork. That was me at that age. <laughs> so both Berserk, and when I say Helsing and Berserk, I mean the old Helsing, not the OVA Helsing. So the one that everybody hates. And the old Berserk where every other frame is a PowerPoint presentation. So not the 3D animated newer ones. I mean the old good stuff. All of these three kind of holds the same value for me. They hit me at a time where I needed my fix of edge. I needed big, strong men to tell me that everything would be okay while tearing the world apart. (laughs) (laughs) And I think when it comes to Helsing, it's the character designs. I love Alucard to this day, even though Helsing is no longer for me. I love Alucard as a character. He is very much a character that I could write. He's both dangerous, but silly and he's hyper aware of his powers and his almost limitless capabilities so he is never in any actual danger and then you have berserk where you have guts who is a very troubled little boy going through horrendous shit after horrendous shit that appealed to me i i thought my life was very horrendous when i was 15 and then of course you have vampire hunter d bloodlust where you follow the titular d and he is just this brooding, beautiful, long-haired, bishy vampire. What's not to like? Oh, yeah. That, that movie is just eye candy from beginning to end. It's uh, some of the most stunning traditional animation ever put on film, I think. Yeah, and it's also Madhouse, which shows it's very similar. I mean, it, the art style is identical to the other short in Animatrix that I'm blanking on. And other than that, I of course, I listed anything Satoshi Kon. <laughs> And I feel by now we need and and a little intermission going bing. We've gone zero episodes without mentioning Satoshi Kon because you know by now it's a fucking joke. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically everything, everything Satoshi Kon, but very especially Millennium Actress for me is just I have this thing about stories about storytelling. Millennium Actress being about storytelling and about the career of an actress. And also having Satoshi Kon's incredible non-literal cutting and framing mm. between elements. It's oh, mwah, so gorgeous. Yeah, that's super valid. Millennium Actors is a movie I only watched once. I was probably too young, so I didn't appreciate just how incredible it is. It's definitely something I should go back to. But yeah, what I love about Satoshi Kon is that visual style in combination with that kind of surreal yet grounded storytelling mode, which I especially love from Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. So I have two last that are old inspirations and then the one that I'm very excited to to mention as my current thing from films and then I'm like through my film list. Ooh, okay. So what, what's your next one? The two old ones I'll jam together for efficiency and they couldn't be more different, which ironically the first one is X-Men Evolution. <laughs> <gasps> really? Yeah. Okay. And Is that... Is that the animated series? Yes. Here in Norway, it aired on right. Cartoon Network, but I'm pretty sure it was not made by and for Cartoon Network. That's just the, the channel that bought up the licensing here. It was, I think, aired from 2000. And this is when I had my very brief but incredibly intense obsession with the X-Men. It's the only superhero thing that I've ever been obsessed with. And more specifically, the character Logan, aka Wolverine. I fell so madly in love with that character that, oh boy, if I could marry Hugh Jackman at the time, I probably would. (laughs) (laughs) I I had an unhealthy hyperfixation on Mr. Jackman. I'm sorry if you're, if you're ever out there and for someone called the reason you stumble across this, I'm, I'm sane now. I'm, I'm an old lesbian, so you're safe. (laughs) Fair enough. But that art style really impacted me because it's very heavy on shape language, obviously, because it's animated. And the X-Men can be surprisingly detailed characters. This is something that is always a pet peeve of mine, is when you can tell the person designing the characters is not going to draw the comics, so they have no fucking clue the effort that goes into rendering this bullshit on every single panel. And in X-Men Evolution, you could tell that the person doing the character design realized how efficient the design had to be to allow for good fluent animation. 
as you know, I've actually now gone back to drawing Logan a lot because it's it's one of those where I suddenly went, God, I still really fucking love this character, even though the last time I drew him, I was 14. Right. I haven't put these down on my list, but you've suddenly reminded me. I think the era that that cartoon came from was around this same era that Batman Beyond was done and also around the same era that Samurai Jack yep. was on. Yep. For, again, for shape language. I loved both of same. those. I never watched X-Men Evolution, but the style and especially the pacing in Samurai Jack, because it doesn't really respect your time. <laughs> <laughs> I would have put those down on this list if I'd remembered them. Yeah, and here I feel like I have to stress that Samurai Jack and Batman Beyond are arguably much more artistically beautiful and original. X-Men Evolution has nothing really mind-blowing about its design in that way, because both Batman Beyond and Samurai Jack have, like you said, incredible shape language in a very different way than what I mean. X-Men Evolution has this shape language that I try to do in my art where it's still a lot of lines and details, yet it works for efficiency. Oh, I should definitely check that out because if it's a big impact on your art, then uh, I think I'll probably appreciate it. That brings me very nicely to the last one of the old ones, which is The Prince of Egypt by DreamWorks. Oh, oh, yes. I have a weird relationship with Prince of Egypt, so you do your piece and I'll... Uh... Oh, I'm very interested. I watched it in the movies. I was very young. I believe I was nine or ten at the time when I watched this in the theaters. I have not grown up with religion, so I did not watch it for religious purposes. And I think I even had a very brief moment going, huh, should I get into religion after this movie? So it definitely had an impact on me. Oh, shit. <laughs> it did not last, a spoiler <laughs> alert. But what did linger with me was, again, the character designs. The movie itself is beautiful, but what is still sticking with me today is, again, shape language, how these characters are both detailed and heavily stylized at the same time. They are so easy to tell apart. They're so beautifully handled. I'm very well aware that there are a lot to criticize about this movie in today's environment with the fact that all these characters I believe were voiced by white people etc there's a lot of stuff to detangle there and I'm just not going to touch it for the purpose of this at the, the simplest form it's just that I think it's a beautifully looking movie and it stayed with me to this day I didn't watch it when it originally came out I saw it relatively recently for the first oh. time so first of all holy crap the animation the sense of volumetric consistency in that is just jaw-dropping I think it's one of the most beautiful animated films ever made. And you can see in films like Klaus the same quality of 3D yet drawn in 2D continuity mm -hmm. in the way that the, the faces move and the shapes in the faces move. I encourage anyone who can to look up the pencil tests from Prince oh, of Egypt yeah. to see the underlying craftsmanship in this animation it's just it's beyond breathtaking i don't even know how how a human was capable of doing it <laughs> both prince of egypt and road to el dorado are animated masterpieces so my problem was that because the plot of the film is actually sort of handled quite straight and as a religious epic despite its problematic elements it's quite effective and the animation being so stunning carries a lot of that in a really impactful way. It might be one of the most interesting and engaging dramatizations of a Bible story out there. Yet at the same time, the fact that it feels beholden to the Disney tropes of the time, the comedy villains, the wacky humor, the sort of obligatory, amusing musical <laughs> segments. I, th I think it's got those. It just, it felt like being kind of like presented a beautiful smoked salmon with a uh, lovely dressing and then being slapped around the face with it <laughs> and then being fed it delicately and then being slapped around the face with it. Oh, that's a very good way of putting it. I think this is where I'm very fortunate that I watched it as a child, so I'm much more forgiving to... Since I know what I'm going through as an adult, I'm not like, oh, and here comes the musical <laughs> shit. Because I'm sitting here like, oh, I can't wait to hear Ray Fine sing. That's me, right? <laughs> and I say this as someone who detests <laughs> right. musicals. Yeah. But I super see where you're coming from that this doesn't hold up when your first experience with it is as an adult. Because I do think stuff like Ramses is... I think him as a villain works well in terms of how he operates. He's just a villain villain. But then you have the two magicians or whatever they're supposed to be that is oh, upstanding yeah. Moses when he is showing that I have God at my back, bros. Back the fuck down. 
and they do the whole you're playing with the big boys musical number stuff like that definitely doesn't hold up that well when you're supposed to take this and again it's made for kids so the fact that this was made for kids is mind-blowing since it's so dark at times and it's you know a biblical fucking story arguably not suitable for children those kind of things are yeah the movie could definitely do without them so in terms of that's why i'm saying i choose to put aside everything that's neither either not that good about it or has aged really poorly i i simply refer to how it looks and how it's crafted yeah absolutely i think in a way it's sort of or at least my experience with it with it was that it was too good for itself it was too good for its own sort of the constraints of its own framing and genre so yeah, around the same era, I watched Wings of Honiamis. Um Now I know that a lot of people consider that a really deeply problematic movie uh, for good reasons, but at the time it deeply impacted me. And I think it was partly because it had this very unusual structure where it had this sort of weird-ass, happy-go-lucky main character, a jaw-dropping animation. It's one of Studio Gainax's very first animations, and it was one of the highest-budget Japanese animations at the time. It paved the way for Akira, effectively. It was really, really stunning and, and quite an interesting story. Then we've got Haibane Renmei by Yoshitoshi Abe. I don't know if you are familiar with his stuff. He did like Serial Experiments Lane. That's the one with the angels, right? Yeah, yeah. It's based on a comic that he never finished, but the animation is complete. And it's about these angels who are born in this strange walled city. And then they live their life out in this city and slowly discover why they're there. And it's just really sensitively handled. The cultural world building is really, really gentle and very, very good. Very sort of enjoyable design and some excellent character writing, I think, in that one. Yeah, I I watched that as a teen too. But what stuck with me most was uh, the music, because I still listen to that to this day. Yeah, I've got the theme tune on one of my uh, favorite music compilations. (laughs) More Studio 4 Degrees C, they did a series of shorts called Genius Party Beyond. If you haven't seen that, I think it's still on Netflix. It's incredible, like just from a technical animation standpoint. Whisper of the Heart. My very favorite Ghibli movie. It just occurred to me that I didn't list a single Ghibli movie, and they obviously need to go there, but I would, again, sit here for five years, so I'm just going to say, yeah, agreed, Ghibli. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, and Whisper of the Heart specifically, because it has that element of it where it's partially about storytelling, and it cuts between scenes that are taken from a story that the main character is writing, and the sense of joy in creation and freedom in self-expression in that movie it just moves me to tears every time i see it Mm, okay yeah it's i think it's a surprise to no one when i say kiki is my biggest influence oh i've been meaning to rewatch that one i don't think i fully appreciated it when i saw it first yeah even as a teen that really really struck a chord with me how they handle creativity Weirdly enough, already as a teen, I had started experiencing the difficulties with being a creative person, the the burnouts, the mental health, the expectations put upon you by yourself and society. And seeing other people basically my age deal with the same and resolve it was deeply emotional for me. And it's to this day. Kiki is a movie that will always make me cry. I don't think I appreciated any of that about it when I watched it, so I'm totally going to give it a rewatch. Then I've got two more. One is a deep, deep aesthetic influence. Uh, This is, anyone's familiar with Your Name or any other of the modern Makoto Shinkai movies. Uh, Makoto Shinkai was originally a background artist. Voice of a distant star and stuff like that. Yes. His very first animation was Voice of the Distant Star, which he made effectively in his basement on his Mac with his wife by themselves. And when I saw that at an anime convention, I think it's also one of his best in a can plots because his plots can be wild. And that kind of, first of all, the quality of his dreamy backgrounds and this sort of, I've heard people describe it as um, mono no aware, the sadness of being. There's just this melancholia to the way that he frames things. I just loved it. It was like candy to my soul. That that was my deep, dark teenage, if that makes sense. Oh, you you yeah. know, that kind of beautiful melancholia. 
And that had a huge impact on me. But also creatively understanding that one person had made that on his computer was deeply inspiring. I was like, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do an animated feature from beginning to end just by myself. And I think that's the ethos with which I've approached all my creativity since. Like anything is possible if I just try it. Oh, yeah, that's that's a dangerous approach, though. Yeah, and it's stung me more than once. And I think it's held me back in a lot of ways. But it's also allowed me to learn loads of things and try loads of things and create much smaller scale versions of the same kind of thing for myself which which i appreciate having been able to do and then the last one which is relatively obscure anime series called moribito sometimes guardian of the spirit it's hard to describe the impact this had on me it's complete in i think 24 episodes like a kind of you imagine like a medieval fantasy in english style but a medieval japanese elements and the character writing in that is so gorgeous and so subtle and so impactful. I watched it when I was sort of an adult, so maybe only about kind of 10 years ago for the first time. That's one of those ones that I'm still trying to allow to impact me. I want desperately to be that good at writing characters, and I keep on coming back to Moribito as a, as a sort of example of something that, that did it so well. I watched Voice of a Distant Star and 5 centimeters per second or whatever it's called many, many years ago. I do hella respect that this is made by, like, essentially two people, like the, the voice of a distant star. I think when I watched it as a young, I was too immature, so I thought the characters looked fucking awful and the animation wasn't that great, which I think to this day is a little bit true, especially the character designs still are... still true. Oh, yeah. But that's like, as an adult, I go, but it's still fucking impressive that two people did this, and I highly respect it. I would never be able to do that. But I did watch Your Name a couple of years ago when the hype was, you know, huge. And I just... It was yeah. one of those movies where I left mad. <laughs> I was really angry because it, it was <laughs> one of my million experiences of people going, it's so good! And then I watch it and I'm like, it really isn't that special though. I, I'm not saying it's not good. I just think that some people have this, I don't know if you call it talent or unfortunate habit of blowing something so up that by the time you finally get the time to experience it for yourself, you're just like, I don't understand. Am I dumb? We talked about this a lot because I'm an involuntarily hipster. I don't like being this way. I wish I thought football and Naruto and beer was the best fucking thing under the sun. I just don't. <laughs> I really wish I was that kind of normie because it would make my life so much more approachable and easy. I love that those are the three things you picked. Football, Naruto, and beer. <laughs> I, can you tell I really struggle trying to pitch the three normal things together because that's how not I am hip with the kids. <laughs> that's what I picture. A dude drinking beer and watching football and Naruto on two different screens. Um, anyway... <laughs> Your name was in that category for me where I felt it wanted to be so much. And in the end, I sat there going, well, that was a waste of my fucking time. And then the rest of the world sat there circle jerking. It's so hard. So it's clearly a me thing. It's not your name. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I came to Voices of a Distant Star and just really liked the science fiction concept behind it. The idea of having a love story that was affected by the speed of light barrier, which was really interesting on a, on a kind of a science fiction technical level. I got five centimeters per second and I was very, very excited about it. And that first shot where the guy's going to meet the girl and he's getting later and later and later was stunning. I loved that sense of melancholia. I loved that it was beautiful and it felt all heartachy. And then the rest was a pile of bullshit, to put it <laughs> put bluntly. Like the other, the other two shorts were awful. And then the next movie he released, I hated. I think he did Garden of Words after yes. that. I can't remember. Yes. Basically, I've given I've given every single Makoto Shinkai movie I could get a hold of a try, and I still only like Voices of a Distant Star and the first short from Five Centimeters a Second. <laughs> that's but I love his aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Like that's. I uh, guess that's also a thing for me. I think his background is incredibly kitsch. It's not something I enjoy at all. So. Oh, okay. This is uh, sort of like uh, John Williams, the, the the way that you react to John Williams' music, <laughs> but put into a background. Yes. Oh, I hate that. I'm such a hater. I swear I don't do it to be cool. I really wish I loved these things. I will say I love John Williams' Jaws theme 
obligatory i think it's fantastic uh (laughs) but yeah i i swear hand on my heart i don't do this to sound interesting because there's nothing interesting about being a hater it's not a personality trait that's something i preach disliking something doesn't make you approachable or cool it just makes you annoying (laughs) his 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 stuff just isn't for me it's it's in the same vein as superhero stuff where i go there and i i feel almost unintelligent approaching it because it makes me wonder, is this too high bar for me? Am I that dumb? Like, is there something I'm not grasping here? I don't think there's anything deep to it. I think it's the visual equivalent of having a very, very nice dessert or something. Yeah. It just Not everyone likes sugar, but if you do like sugar, you like Makoto Shinkai's backgrounds. You know, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And that, that does put my mind at ease. It also beautifully segues into the very last thing on my list where I say, I don't like anything mainstream. This one is incredibly mainstream. It's very recent. I did text you a while back that I had watched it and we just never ended up talking about it because we always have to dart after our recordings. Cyberpunk Edge Runners. Oh, that's the Studio Trigger Cyberpunk anime. Yes, right? based, based on, on CD on Project Red's titular Cyberpunk. Wow. Yeah. I've never seen it. I didn't even think to watch it. Paul, it was a religious experience for me. <laughs> Really? <laughs> and now I fall into the territory of sounding like I am trying to make this sound amazing for everybody else. Both my girlfriend and my best friend has watched this. I watched this with my best friend and neither of them liked it that much. Maybe this is one of those, oh yeah, it was hella fucking popular. I have no idea what the general consensus is of it. I just know that because it's cyberpunk and people can't masturbate hard enough to see the Project Red, that this was very popular once it was released. I didn't watch it because I, when it was new, I mean, since I am not a CG Project Red fanboy, I also am not that invested in the game. I've played some of it, but I do recognize the universe, which I do think is actually kind of key to enjoy the anime. If you haven't played the game, I do think there's a lot of terminology that is just never explained, which I am grateful for. I don't want the exposition shit, but it also can leave you sit there go when it's just blasting in front of your eyes. I struggled articulating both to my partner and my best friend why this resonated so heavily with me. From a pure technical standpoint, it is. It's Studio Trigger, so what you get is excellent eye candy. It is beautiful to look at. Both animation is stunning. The Mm. art style, I can only dream to ever be that talented at drawing. There's something about following a main character that... It does definitely traverse a lot of tried and tired tropes, and I will not even pretend to say that it doesn't. But to finally be served a bunch of characters that are incredibly flawed, and that is kind of just accepted. They don't have to be excused. We don't have to spend five hours explaining their deep, dark, fucking reasoning background for being the way they are. They just are, for very bullet point reasons. And you follow them through that life, basically. I'm trying to keep it as vague as possible because I really do not want to spoil something that is so new. I really appreciated seeing just imperfect characters on screen being allowed to be imperfect. That is something that is deeply lacking in a lot of today's media because it is so fucking morally correct and so upright. And I do not mean in a... We should respect women and queers and people of color. That's not what I'm referencing. I mean that we still need fucking difficult, deep, dark stories. We can't have, and then the hero saved the day every single time because that will rot my goddamn fucking brain. And Cyberpunk was just such a juicy apple in this horrible, rotten garden that we find ourselves in these days with popular media IMO. (laughs) Oh, definitely give it a try. I do know what you mean about sort of some like modern storytelling trends. I, I feel like we we entered an era where the golden standard was somebody's coffee shop AU. Oh and, boy! Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> There's a place for that, and I like a good slice of life. But uh, yeah, we need a balance. Yeah. Uh, I've this has reminded me. There is one more film. I wrote it sideways because I remembered it later okay. whilst I was writing. And I just have to mention, and this is the most unabashedly pure aesthetic thing I've got on my list, which is X1999, the movie. It's the pinnacle of 
clamp aesthetic anime from the late 90s. I have not watched it, but I'm very familiar with it. It's pure cherry blossoms, pure giant-eyed Bishojo <laughs> and Bishonen. It's pure flowing cloaks and angel wings, and oh man, I ate it up. I loved the aesthetics so hard. Uh, oh my god, I almost left out the most important one because I was so eager to, to dash through Cyberpunk. Holy shit. FLCL. Oh, yeah. It's one of my biggest influences of all time, both when it comes to efficient storytelling, character design, how their personalities are. FLCL, ride or die. I fucking love it. I watched it when I was 14 or 15. The soundtrack is tight. The execution is tight. It's six episodes that just doesn't mm. fuck around and find out. It's just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And either you're on board or you're not. And that is the purest distilled essence of what I want to do. I uh, listened to nothing but the pillows for months after I watched that for the first time. <laughs> the the music in some of the scenes, like when the girl is standing on the, the bridge smoking and that like clangy, sad ass melancholic guitar. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it was really unusual because I'd sort of, I hadn't gotten into Japanese pop music at the time, but that was very, very uh, Britpop by way of mm, Japan. Yeah. And uh, I was into Oasis at the time. So <laughs> the two sort of came together and I was like, holy shit, this is the best thing ever. Oh, you're such a normie. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I say as someone who was a diehard fan of Metallica, so I, I, I can't shit on you at oh, all. Yeah, I can't yeah. shit on you at all. I say that affectionately. <laughs> As we suspected, this turned out way more elaborate and intricate and intimate than any of us could foresee. So this is going to be a two-parter. We're going to have to split it into two. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed our incredibly self-indulgent trip down memory lane and exposition of who we are as creative people. <laughs> hopefully you're not leaving too devastated. <laughs> Oh man, right. there will always be vehement disagreements in this kind of realm. I think it's worth sort of like bringing it back to the beginning and, and just reminding people, this isn't what I watched and read most. It's not what I'm proudest of. It's not what I think is the very best or enjoyed the most necessarily. It's just the things that hit me with the inspiration hammer that I cannot ignore as part of my creative identity. Love it or hate it. I'll see you in two weeks where we pick up where we left off and we'll continue with our media influences. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to delving into the second half of this very in-depth episode. Yeah, same. I'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye. It's like a human STD. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Like it started as something fine and then must came into the picture and you're like oh gross no now i'm itchy and undesirable <laughs> i've got a case of the musks <laughs> oh no oh that sounds so bad <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really legit <laughs> oh it's just i love tom hardy's venom voice and there's more of it in that movie than there is in the original you one mean when it it's that like simple the cookie monster <laughs> yeah eddie he's just like eddie i want to do the thing eddie <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, give me more of that shit. <laughs> you know, there are some bros out there unironically thinking they're just really good friends when they say, I love you. <laughs> it's, it's gal pals all over again, and then they were roommates. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that you going, oh, that's cool, made me immediately think you were going to say boobies. <laughs> I mean, I was a teenager once. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we all? 